Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So delighted to be joined in line by Hugo Southwell, owner of the most cultured left boot in all of Scottish rugby. Hugo, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Very well, despite the situation, very well. And how how is isolation treating you at the moment? What's the what's your current setup? Um, well, I'm, I'm I'm working from home, like uh, I would say, the majority of the population. Um, I mean, it's uh, it's been as it has been for for a lot of people, a very tough time. Um, Business-wise, but obviously that's the, the least of uh, um, everyone's concerns with, with what's going on um, uh, with with with, uh, with everyone's health. But you know, it's I'm, I'm at home. I'm working from home up in Edinburgh. Um, obviously, the businesses are based down in um, down in uh, Braintree near near, near Stansted, so not much time to uh, haven't, haven't had the opportunity to get down there uh, for obvious reasons. Um, so yeah, it's. Um, yeah, we've, we've effectively been closed, uh, uh, I would guess, for eight weeks now because of non-essential business, but hopefully we'll be uh, uh, starting to properly open up soon uh, with what we do. So for the people who don't know, what what do you sort of, uh, what do you call your career nowadays? Um, well, the, the majority of my uh, time is taken up um, uh, working as a sales director and, and, and sort of part, part running a couple of businesses. We launched um, a business called Trust UK Mobile Billboards uh, about five years ago, actually a year after I finished playing, so in 2015, May right. 2015, uh, we launched this business, and it was a, a guy I'd known uh, for years, actually I played cricket with um, in, in my year out um, from school and university. I, I played cricket with him in, in Cape Town, and uh, he was a Dutch guy, the Dutch Academy, without 
without going too much detail, Dutch Academy were touring. They were there just to have a few uh, three weeks of, of, of nets and experience in South Africa, and they, they suddenly realised, well, we brought nine guys out here. Let's try and uh, get another couple of guys to, to join the Dutch Academy and have a few games against some local South African sides. So I soon became uh, a Dutch Academy cricket player and, uh, and joined, joined those guys, lived with one of them for a while while I was out there and um, got to know this guy, Hink Moll, very well. He actually played cricket for Holland in the World Cup wow. um, back in back in the day. Um, and, uh, yeah, and now business partners. Um, and and he, his, his boss in, in, in Holland asked him five years ago to, to franchise uh, this, the business in, in the UK, and he came to me to join forces to, uh, to set this up. So we launched that five years ago. And are you able to do that from – are you based in Edinburgh now? Is that where you do sort of – operate out of yeah based in Edinburgh and um, yeah travel down probably uh, at the moment obviously not not at all but yeah. normally um, before before COVID-19 struck I was probably going down twi- twice a month uh, to, to London either for meetings or, or to just to check in so yeah but, but I am able uh, I was based down in London uh, after I finished playing for a year and a half while we sort of set up the business um, mm. and, and as the business sort of started to get a bit of traction I was able to um, relocate up to Edinburgh and, and sort of travel from here so yeah it suits everyone suits, uh, suits the family kids are all obviously at school up here uh, and loving it so um, yeah it works really well yeah definitely um, I mean during this period how, how much have you been missing rugby as just a uh you know, a, a distraction that you forget how much you, you, you'd love almost during this kind of period. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess the, the thing I miss from rugby, I, 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 I miss obviously playing, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a, I've grown up playing sport my whole life and uh, I, I'm absolutely, I was in the garden, I was in the garden tonight uh, giving, my, giving my daughter a, a golf lesson, she was absolutely, uh, absolutely <laughs> loving it. Um, but no, I, I, I love my sport and, and I do miss, um, Miss playing, uh, miss playing rugby. I miss most of all, um, and you know, people who have played rugby will, uh, will, 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 will sympathise with this. It's the camaraderie. It's the, it's the day-to-day banter. It's the, it's, it's the going in, and you know, yes, work is work after rugby. Uh, you know, brings its own um, uh, satisfaction, um, but you don't quite have the same relationships necessarily uh, with your colleagues that you would. Uh, with your with with your rugby mates, and uh, you know that's something you, you can sort of never re- underestimate, mm. um, and never and never really and never really get back. But obviously, you form close friendships, close relationships, and those are still strong in the years 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 to come. So, you know that that's the main thing I miss. I obviously miss playing, but uh, my body was telling me at the time that it was uh, definitely time to to stop. And how long ago was it that you you had the boots hung up? No. Um, yeah, so I, I was obviously a, finished at Wasps uh, in 2014, but I actually got injured uh, in 2013, the summer of 2013, um, and retired um, in um, April 2014. Um, that year was my um, uh, third year at Wasps, and I, and I just never really managed to. I was, I was in pre-season training um, and was doing some support. Training, which is never a good idea with uh, with Tom Vardell and Christian Wade, um, <laughs> you know, two, two probably the fastest guys uh, at the time in the Premiership, yeah. and uh, obviously the old guy trying to keep up uh, never really was going to work, and uh, managed to managed to pop pop my hamstring. Um, at the time, it didn't feel too bad. I'd, I'd, I'd sort of um, it was a proximal tendon tear, so the inside tendon that attaches uh, to your, to your uh, pelvis was sort of two thirds frayed. 
um, but it never actually popped off. Some people like Paul O'Connell obviously retired from from this sort of thing where he ruptured his hamstring completely, mm. and we've seen you know like so Mark Bennett obviously went through a, a brutal hamstring injury as well. But the age that I was at, and the fact that it hadn't ruptured completely, the only way they were going to be able to repair it, they said, was by uh, was by taking it off and putting it back on, so taking my hamstring off completely and reattaching it, which obviously Jeez. had complications at the age that I was at, um, 33, 34. So they. Um, they, they sort of advised on medical grounds that it was it was probably time to, to, to give it. I mean, I was never I was never quick anyway, so God knows how uh, slow I would have come back after a, a, a ruptured hamstring. So uh, it was time to call it a day. Yeah, fair play. Um, and did, at that point, had you ever thought about like carrying on in a coaching capacity or anything, or was that just sort of like you know drawing a line under under rugby at that point? I, I actually um, I actually coached a bit at Roslyn Park in my, okay. when I was injured. Um, no, I enjoyed it. Um, my my biggest my biggest um, reason for not going into coaching, and and, and it was a hundred percent a decision in my head that I I, I I was happy with was I just didn't want to. I, I'd moved around a bit, you know. I'd been in I'd been in France. I'd been in um, Edinburgh obviously for, for eight or nine years. Mm. And I then went to Wasps, and we I felt as a family. I, I had two kids by the time uh, I'd finished playing. And I felt I owed it to my family to to get to, to move somewhere to settle down. Yeah. Um, you know, as a coach, as we know, it's probably even more fickle than, than being a player. And you know, you could be uh, loved one minute and hated the next, and it, it could be you'd be two years here, two years there. Uh, and for me, that that just didn't seem fair. I wanted to, I wanted my young family to be able to settle somewhere, and uh, you know, closer to family. We had a house in Edinburgh. We'd always been renting uh, in places on the mm. move, and you know, to be able to go back to a house that we had in Edinburgh. Sure. So, so Wasp was the end of a you know like a a long and pretty varied career. Um, but maybe I can sort of take you back to your 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 first memories of just you know picking up a rugby ball and where you started to you know develop that love of the game from. Well, it's an interesting one. People always talk to me about this, and and, and rugby rugby was never ever. Um, and I, I don't mean this, and I don't want to put a damper on this <laughs> on this sort of Q and A as such yeah. on this podcast. But rugby was never my passion. I mean, I I came quite late. To, I'd always played rugby. I played rugby through school. Um, I played it growing up. I obviously played mini rugby and stuff. And yes, I had a I had a passion for it. But I had a passion for every single sport. I mean, you know, I remember being in hospital when I was eight, and uh, the um, I had an operation uh, when I was eight, um, and I was taken into hospital, and uh, the doctors came up to help. Yeah, or, or sorry, the doctors, the nurses came up and said, well, can we put some on the TV for you? And I said, yeah, can, can you put the darts on? And, and I think they thought, you know, an eight-year-old wanted to watch the darts. It was not because I actually thought the darts was the most exciting thing, but I just, I just any sport that was on TV, anything yeah. um, that, that I could watch sport, sports-wise, I would. And you know, I was outside the whole time. I spent a whole youth uh, in the garden playing football, cricket, rugby, wherever I'd get my hands on. So mm. I guess what I'm saying on that is I, I didn't really have a love for um, my passion, I suppose, at the time. And the sport that, as a kid, I was best at was cricket. Right. Um, and, and, I grew, and I grew up, um, you know, playing through through the age groups of Sussex all the way through to to second team, and didn't quite um, pull off a contract and, uh, with Sussex. And rather than at the time thinking, right, I'm going to go and uh, I'm, I'm going to go and try another county, I was quite sort of, uh, you know, a typical teenager, but bit, bit 
bit peed off with the situation. It was like, oh yeah, well, if it's not going to give me a contract, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to continue continue with this. So I, I decided to write a bit of university, um, and obviously university culture is very much based around uh, uh, more or more based around rugby, especially in, in back in you know 10, 15 years ago, sure. or 20, 20 years ago now actually. Um, and, <laughs> and, and so obviously I got more into my rugby at university, and, and it got spotted at university. Um, playing the varsity game, um, Bristol varsity game, and, and, and that was it. Um, went to Worcester on trial during my finals at, um, at, at UE in Bristol and, and, and got away with a contract at Worcester. And that's when uh, I, I played with, with Craig Chalmers, met Craig Chalmers there. Um, right. We had a year together, and he suggested um, you know, I had nothing to lose. Uh, Worcester, my first year at Worcester was, was great, but I still felt a bit of a uni student playing rugby. Sure. Uh, I was still sort of out on a Wednesday night you know, enjoy, enjoying life, but not really sort of fully engaged in, in what professional rugby was all about quite yet. Um, but obviously still, when I got the opportunity, you know, did what I could. And Craig, Craig, Craig introduced me uh, a band to Frank Haddon. Obviously, he was the, 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 the Edinburgh coach at the time. And, mm. um, you know, went up there on trial and, 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 and the rest was history. Um, it was, you know, I had an amazing time there. Edinburgh right from day one. Um, playing with, if you remember back then, you know some of some of the best players that probably ever wore the Edinburgh jersey in Tom sure. Blackadder and Brendan Laney and Derek Lee and guys like Chris Patterson, obviously Mossy, you know, grew to play alongside for, for for many years. So it was it was a baptism of fire, but it was something that um, yeah, it was the best thing I've ever done. For sure, and I mean, you, you mentioned all those sort of you know proper Edinburgh legends. What were your sort of earliest memories in your time there? Was it? Sort of intimidating coming coming up there as like a kind of a younger guy. Um, you know, how, how did you how did you find it from the start? Uh, it's a funny thing. I, I didn't uh, when I was younger. When I was growing up, at eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Um, and, and I guess people, you know, it, it depends how you deal with the pressure at different stages of your career. But uh, I, I suppose that when I got to the age, I didn't start professional rugby till I was twenty two. So, right. so for me, I, I felt I was almost in a, in a stage where. There was. It, it might seem that at 22 there's more pressure on you, but for me, I felt like there was less pressure. I felt like I'd matured a bit more than if you start rugby or start at 18, 19, and you're you're trying to you know, be the young gun coming into the team. There is quite a lot of pressure on you. Um, plus, you know, the guys that I was playing with um, were. Uh, I mean, I couldn't have been welcomed into the team any better. I mean, if you look back in, the, in, that, in that era uh, of what we did, obviously we had a we had a very good team, but we also you know competed. Um, regularly in Europe um, mm. as we did that year when we got to the quarterfinals um, and beat to lose in the group stages but then lost in the quarterfinals away in, in the football stadium there but yeah we had, a, we had a very good team we had some, some absolutely quality players and we had some brilliant blokes as well mm. uh, and I think that made it very much more easy that when I when I came up here it, it just felt so natural and it, it I didn't ever feel pressurised by my teammates, who are the main people you're trying to perform for. Mm. It's your teammates and ultimately, you know, yourself uh, after that. Um, and I didn't feel pressurised because it, everyone was so welcoming and everyone made me feel as if I wasn't a first-year pro, in effect. And, and what were your... You, you sort of mentioned those Toulouse matches, which I still think have definitely been sort of replayed through lockdown. Um, but what, what are your sort of... your the, the matches that really stick out for you from, from that Edinburgh time? because they were really early in my days um, of, of Edinburgh. Mm. Um, so, so those Toulouse games, I mean, playing in, bear in mind, I, I, I've been playing uni rugby a year and a half ago uh, previous to that, and then I, I mean, I've been playing Toulouse in the quarterfinals, you know, against the likes of Intermac and Jojo, um, 
you know, Vincent Clerc, Quattro, all these guys yeah. have been legends, legends of French rugby probably for five, six, seven years previous to that as well. Dominici, all these guys, uh, Fabian Palouse, you know, it was, it was a, it was a serious, um, Christian beat as well, I remember, just a massive number eight, but it was a, it was that sort of team that, you know, playing against, you're playing the football stadium because they obviously wanted to get more crowd in them. Yeah. 33, 34,000 uh, um, into lose watching that game absolutely jam-packed and you're thinking gee this is <laughs> this is this is proper this is proper I've, I've been playing uni games in, in front of 100 people and, and uh, a year and a half ago and here I am and that culminated you know that season um, obviously led to, to to my first Scotland camp at the end of the end of that year on the summer tour so it was just a whirlwind sort of 12, 18 months and you know the opportunity came from from in fortunate circumstances uh, on the Scotland tour uh, with, with injuries to probably three people ahead of me uh, that's basically how I got my chance initially but right. when you get your chance you, you know you have to have to take it and that's luckily what happened in that you know Australia game yeah definitely it, I mean just looking back at that tour it sort of seemed as if it was a bit of a a bit of a throwback like you played some sort of midweek games and that sort of thing did it did it still have that sort of um, like sort of am- amateur feel Feel to it. it's like I, I mean that in a good way. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it had an amateur feel in the way the tour. I mean, the tour was very, very professional. I, I think the games, all the movement uh, from from place to place, um, you know, everything had been mapped out as if it was a professional outfit, and I mean, it was a professional outfit. But so I wouldn't say it in that way. The only thing I would say that it's different is it was it was six weeks long. Mm. Um, these, these days, as you know, tours aren't anything longer than two weeks. So it was six weeks long. Uh, we did play midweek games. And I was playing on the Thursday night, uh, is it the Thursday night or the Tuesday night, sorry, against New South Wales country. Cause effectively we, we were in the dirt trackers, uh, side. I went on tour as probably the 45th player to go on. Bear in mind there was, right. there was 40, 45 players in the first place that went. Yeah. Whereas now, whereas now you're looking at what, 26 max? I don't, I don't know what the numbers are now on tour. Sure. But I can't even, yeah, 26, I was like 28 maybe. Um, but there was 45 people on tour and I can assure you, I probably would have been for this guy out of the hat. Um, <laughs> and, you know, just to make it on the tour was amazing. Um, but I was playing, um, against New South Wales, uh, country, uh, in Wollongong, uh, for the, for the dirt trackers on, on the Tuesday night, uh, in the, in the, uh, St. George Illawarra stadium. Yeah. And, you know, amazing stadium backed onto the sea. Um, and obviously planning the night out afterwards. Um, until I got a call at half time, right? You go, you've got to come off. Or I think it was 60 minutes actually. Uh, you've got to come off. Um, because Tom Phillips gone down on the beach, uh, during the day or during the oh, afternoon geez. playing tap rugby and starting his cruise ship. And I'm, and I'm thinking, this is, this is, I was, I already had my head, uh, in the pub in, uh, in, in, in Wollongong somewhere. Yeah. Um, but instead I was, uh, I was whisked off somewhere to, cause obviously the, the first team, um, were playing, uh, Samoa in Wellington on the Friday night. Yeah. This was, this was Wollongong on the Tuesday night, uh, in Australia. So I was, I was, uh, I don't know if I flew that, uh, I don't know because the game was in the evening, but I flew, um, the next morning, arrived in, in Wellington and obviously was straight off the bench because, and took Tom Phillips' place on the bench. Mm. Um, the game, obviously on the Friday night in Wellington, um, I'm not sure how much uh, you remember of it, but, uh, Mossy, Mossy obviously was playing fullback, uh, Simon Webster was on the wing, and Simon Webster, uh, I went on for Simon Webster probably after about 30 minutes as a blood replacement, and, right. uh, on the left wing, and Gordon Ross was playing 10 in the game, and I took an inside ball off Gordon Ross after, uh, I think it was my first touch, 
and right in the bread basket, through a hole. Uh, I mean, it, you know, my eyes lit up. I was like, this is it. First touch in Test Rugby. Yeah. Spilled the ball. Spilled the ball <laughs> in the bread basket. And I was like, right. And then look, look to the touchline. There's Simon Webster ready to come back on from his, from his bloody nose. So I'm like, this could actually be my only touch in Test Rugby. <laughs> um, lo and behold, uh, Mossy then, half an hour before the end of the game, fractures his cheekbone. Poor, poor, poor Mossy. Jeez. Um, bear in mind, in the first game of the tour, against the Queens and the Reds, Robbie Kidd had fractured his cheekbone as well. So I'd gone from 45th bear on the tour to replacing Tom Phillips on Tom Phillips on the substitutes bench for, for the Samoa test, to Mossy then going back going down in the game, fracturing his cheekbone and being out for the tour. Robbie Kidd had already been, he was second choice fullback, yeah. had already been fractured cheekbone off the tour. So suddenly I found myself and I, luckily the last half an hour went pretty well against Samoa. So uh, as you remember we won yeah, yeah. 32 three or something. So yeah. um, so ended up starting against Australia. When I say, you know, luck played its part um, in, in the start of my career, but that is literally how it unfolded and uh, my unfortunate uh, situation with other people led to, led to my first first couple of caps and then you know it's about grasping it from there and in some ways I did that other times it was a struggle but uh, obviously there was some good times in there as well and what, and what do you remember from that um, particularly that that first start versus Australia I mean that you look at the Australian team and they've got like a back three of Takiri Wendell Saylor, Juroff, Larkin and Gregan, like that that was a serious outfit. Yeah, a serious outfit. And I, and I guess the best thing about that weekend, and, and you talked about um, the sort of amateur era and, and, and whether that was a slightly more amateur tour, it wasn't necessarily amateur, but you did more you did more stuff. You you explored the country more, you went out to restaurants more, you had beers with your mates a bit more. Yeah. Um, within within reason obviously, but that weekend around my first camp was summed up. Um, with, with, with how things were, you know, on the, it was the Queen's birthday, uh, that, that weekend of that test match. So on the Friday, we were playing at the Telstra Dome, um, in Melbourne, the first test. And on the Friday, Saturday, was it the Friday? So Friday, Sunday, Monday, there was Aussie Rules football. Mm-hmm. So, on, so on the Friday night before the test, uh, which I'm not sure would quite be uh, the same situation now. We, we were all at the Telstra Dome watching, uh, well, it might be actually, if it's that close, but we were watching, uh, I think it was Carlton against Hawthorne, which obviously was a, a pretty tasty um, yeah. Aussie, Aussie Rules, um, I think it was a local derby even. And so we watched that on the Friday night, and then obviously we played a test match on the Saturday. It was full on the Friday night, it was full on the Saturday, it was then full on the Sunday and the Monday. So you can Jeez. imagine the, the festival of rugby and Aussie rules that was going on that weekend. So all I remember is, is just that wherever you went in Melbourne that weekend, there was an absolute buzz. I mean, bear in mind, Scotland, Australia, Australia at the time were, as you said, with that back three alone, but they were a pretty useful outfit. And, you know, most most Australian teams might have been thinking, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is a Scotland team coming over here with, with you know, trying to win a game but actually it, how much hope is there that they will actually win I, I think you know we were we were trying to compete Either, we didn't yeah. think that we wanted to win obviously but let, let's be realistic about the situation they were a much better side than us on paper mm. um, and I mean what an experience that game lives a lot in my memory I mean not only did I almost got completely uh, KO'd by showing my head where I shouldn't have done tackling Wendell Saylor um, <laughs> but also I remember, I remember a moment um, and this was this was the confidence of someone who probably hadn't experienced uh, too much in international rugby before I got a ball I got I got um, got the ball on the, I think it was about 
when I was about 45 metres out and I thought it was really early in the game I thought to myself well why not let's have a pop but a drop goal uh, it wasn't it wasn't quite on the desk and uh, it ended up landing from I probably kicked it from 45 metres it landed on the 22 in my defender's arms oh jeez I, I, I don't think my forwards are too happy with me uh, <laughs> since to that day since then I don't think I've tried another drop goal in my international career uh, I mean, do, do <laughs> but, we... but an amazing experience I mean what what a a brilliant place to play rugby Australia is, is, is a phenomenal place to play a brilliant place to the, the training and everything building up to that game I mean it was probably one of the barring Murrayfield one of the best places um, uh, you know anywhere Australia to get your debut it was an amazing feeling full crowd um, brilliant atmosphere and, and obviously the whole weekend was just buzzing in Melbourne yeah definitely I'm, I'm trying I'm currently uh, sort of trying to find a YouTube stream of that match but um, to find that drop kick but I think you 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 might be saved. I don't think I can find it at the moment. Yeah, no, I I, I probably uh, asked them to delete it. Um, and that was that tour under Matt Williams. It was under Matt Williams. Yeah, that was. I think that was Matt Williams. Probably one of his. Is it one of his first tours? I, I forget when he sort of came in. Yeah. Um, it probably was. Yeah, probably one of Matt Williams' first tours. What What was your experience of of him as a coach? Obviously, he's sort of gone gone down as a you know, not the best period for, for Scottish rugby? Uh, I, I, to be fair, with, with Matt, my, my experiences with Matt weren't, weren't too bad. I think I think some of the people uh, around Matt weren't, uh, weren't, weren't ideal. Um, I mean, we, we, we have a, a good laugh and a joke, uh, quite a few of us, um, after Matt had left, and, and some of the guys, Willie Anderson and, uh, and Brett Igo, um, who was the who was the video guy and, and sort of um, what well, sort of tended to take on a, 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 a bigger role as, as things went on but I mean I, I think the, the people around him as well um, probably uh, clouded things for him uh, my experience with Matt wasn't too bad but obviously his record um, I mean I, I didn't get much out of him when he started playing me at 12 um, that, right. that's, probably, that's, that's <laughs> safe to say completely out of position so I've never played before but he said oh, I, you know, I want to get you on the pitch I'm going to play you at 12 and I was like well thanks very much um, you know and I remember one game playing at 12 and obviously Normally, normally running into sevens when you're playing twelve off the back of a line out, and I remember I remember getting a dead leg, which I will never forget from Maribor Moscow against Italy, Jeez. Um, which 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 kept me out. Luckily, it was in one of the breaks of the Six Nations, but I remember wearing a pad like a, a plastic casing on my leg um, underneath, you know, which is probably totally illegal. Um, <laughs> but I had to put it on there just to just to be able to get out on the pitch um, in case it took anybody hit. But I had that on for like four weeks, causing so much pain. Um, so that, that was that was my uh, experience of playing twelve, just running into, into sevens all day, and people like Maribor Gamasco not ideal. Jeez. Oh, um, and th- and then Frank Handon was next in the in the hot seat for Scotland. It seems like sort of um, you were quite a, a regular pick under under him. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I played. Uh, I think I had the. Uh, I was fortunate that I played under Frank at Edinburgh, um, and he had signed me having been on trial there, and obviously I've been through. Um, you know, the good times with him at Edinburgh when we when we were playing well and you know I'd had a good start to my career at Edinburgh and so that, I suppose that put me in a, in a position where he knew me as a player he knew what I could do um, and you know there was there was a certain trust there um, yeah I mean we, we had some uh, as you know some some great victories under Frank um, especially against England um, and, and those you know stand out 
beyond anything else in the memory um, of a period, you know, 2006, 2010, we obviously didn't lose at Murrayfield, um, you know, winning twice in, in, in um, two, I know obviously one of them wasn't him, um, but 2006, 2008, and then obviously Drew in 2010, so it was, it, you know, that in itself um, is, a, is a pretty good record. Yes, there was other other results as well that were good, uh, and there was plenty that weren't so good. But um, you know that period under Frank, I suppose he, he knew quite a lot of the guys in the team. He'd coached a lot of them at Edinburgh. He'd, he'd probably coached a lot of them yet when they were younger as well. So um, the difficult thing is, as a, as a coach, is that you know you, you always go through. We always talk about this. You always go through a honeymoon period, mm. uh, and, and sustaining that, that that honeymoon period. It, it, Almost shows you how good a, how good a coach is because that that sort of shows everyone that the management skills as well. It's not just about being uh, a brilliant coach because coaches have other coaches around them that that are just as good. So it's about your man management and about how you treat every single indiv- individual. And you know that's that, that's where a lot of coaches, um, I suppose, since Frank um, have become unstuck. They might be good coaches, um, but their man management skills and skills have let them down. Sure. I mean, was there a sense that, you know, during, during that period where you, you played most of rugby for Scotland that, you know, you were always almost on the brink of, you know, uh, greater success? You know, it seemed whenever a new coach came in, like when Frank Haddon came in um, and you beat France and, and um, drew with England that year, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we won three games that year, so we, we lost probably beat Italy that year as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that was, was that 2006, I think? Yeah, I think, I think that sounds about right. But do you think you guys kind of felt like you were on the cusp of, of something? <sighs> it's, it, it, I mean, we, we were very close. I mean, <laughs> let's be honest, we're still very close. Um, yeah. And, you know, Scotland has always been a, um, a team that on their day could perform and beat pretty much anyone. I mean, I, again, probably bar the All Blacks who, who performance wise, I know we came close uh, a few years ago, um, but, but on, their, on our day, we can pretty much we can pretty much beat everyone in, in, in any year, year that you go back to. Um, the, the problem that we've had over is, is one keeping you know, the best players available on the pitch at any one time. So you know, we haven't had a huge pool of. It's not like we've got 30, 40 players. Obviously, it's getting there now. We're getting uh, more depth um, around now uh, with the quality of players coming through. But in the in the day, we we had a pool probably of 25 players, um, 30 players maybe maximum that, that we needed. And if you had any injuries, you were always up against it. Uh, and I think I'm not defending that against our consistency of, consistency of performance because that has always been an issue in Scottish rugby. Mm. Uh, we, you know, on the day we can beat anyone, we can put in mass performance. The hopes, the hopes rise, and then obviously it's flat the next week, and that is very difficult to to sort of explain. Um, uh, I, I, to this day, I, I still, you know. It wasn't like we weren't trying any hard at one game. It wasn't yeah. like we, we mentally were off it. It's just sometimes that, uh, you know, we, we, consistency of performance in Scottish rugby, um, has not been, uh, you know, good enough. Not, not been not good enough, but has needed to improve for a number of years. And we're still, we're still there, I guess. We're still winning some amazing games. And then, you know, we're, we're, we're losing again games we should win. So uh, until we can hit those heights of consistency, um, it's always going to be a sort of nearly uh, a, a nearly moment in Scottish rugby, and you know, I thought we'd gone beyond that um, very 
recently, but then, you know, a couple of bad performances came. So I'm hoping, I mean, the team we've got at the moment and the squad we've put together uh, and Greg has put together, uh, there's every hope and there's every chance that this team can start to consistently. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Perform at a level where everyone can get excited. Um, it's just frustrating that it hasn't been able to happen just just yeah yeah for sure but do, you, do you still keep a close eye on things do you do you watch a lot of rugby yeah no i still i still do you know quite a bit of uh quite a bit of commentary so um i didn't mention that earlier but i, I do obviously pro 14 um you know probably sure. one or two games a month and, and and i do um a bit of i was due to do the edinburgh bordeaux uh quarterfinal um, right in, in the challenge cup as well for bt so i'm still i'm still doing a bit of stuff obviously um the other other side of work um, keeps me uh, keeps you pretty busy, so it doesn't allow me to do as much as maybe I'd like. Um, but but I still very much enjoy um, you know watching stuff um, and, and keeping a quite close eye on things. And obviously worked you know at, at Murrayfield during the Six Nations, so I was there. You know I saw what the guys are capable of, what they can do. Um, as always, everyone wants and everyone wishes for that it just can happen uh, on a more consistent basis. Not not necessarily the results because. We're going to get beaten by you know, teams that there's some good teams out there, but I suppose it's that consistency of performance that everyone, just fans, but players, coaches, will be striving for. For sure. Um, I, I suppose going back to your your club career, um, you m- moved away from Edinburgh in 2009. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, 2009. What, what was sort of what was the driving force behind behind that at the time? I, I think that at the time I, I've been in Edinburgh for uh, seven or eight years. Um, I felt that if I didn't move, um, you know, you get to the stage in your career where, well, well two, two things really. It was it was a challenge of, of moving somewhere else, um, and, and and also the opportunity came. I, I was in the Six Nations, February two thousand. It must have been February 2009. Yeah, February 2009. Six Nations of Australia with Simon Taylor. And mm. Simon Taylor was obviously a staff Francais at the time. Uh, and he uh, mentioned to me um, that Ignacio Corletto, who obviously was the fullback for Argentina, but the fullback for Stade Francais at the time as well, had fallen out with Max, the owner. And we all know that you don't really want to fall out with Max if you play at Well, that's exactly what Corletto had done. He'd got injured, he'd returned to Argentina, and he decided that uh, he wasn't coming back um, until um, things had been patched up. But he was obviously getting rehab in Argentina as well, which had gone against the club's uh, requests. Right. So, so this this was a situation. Um, they hadn't 
yet announced it, but obviously Simon had had the inside knowledge that that was that was the case, and he said to me, "I know that they're on the lookout for a fullback, but they haven't officially uh, raised this as a, as a as a situation yet." So at the time, um, Ewan McKenzie, who was the ex Australian prop, was was the, was the coach, mm. um, and so so my agent got in touch with them, and it seemed like with with what I said about you know needing potentially change to sort of to give give my career hopefully a, a sort of uh, a, a second push as such at that stage of what was like 20, 28, 29, 29 I think it was at the time um, I thought right well here's an opportunity if I don't look out look look and see what the uh, what, what the situation is here um, I might regret it and so obviously my agent um, spoke to you and Mackenzie I went over there had a chat with him um, the other fullback at the time Nick Jean Jean who was also sort of there or thereabouts in, in, the, in the French squad mm. so I had a chat to you and Mackenzie um, and obviously he did his very very Australian proper research you know wanted everything from speed times which I tried to shield shield away from him <laughs> um, he wanted you know everything from uh, the last two years of, of international games he wasn't interested in club games so I sent those over to him he studied them he fired questions back to me and in the end um, he, he decided that uh, he, he would sign me and that was you know ironically he signed me but I never played for him he, he, he got sacked um, before the end of that season um, and so I was uh, I actually signed when I signed for Stadion, I think it was April or May, he, he was still there at the club, but then he left in June. Um, so I had signed for him, but I've never played under him. And uh, my right. first coach was uh, was Jack Delmas, okay. um, who was uh, yeah, slightly different to you and McKenzie, I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, if, I've never seen someone um, uh, who can ridicule James Haskell uh, as much as he did uh, in, in a game away at Montpellier, telling him that he was going to rip up his contract uh, in French. Um, and Ben, ben Kayser, who obviously spoke uh, English and French, had to translate to Haskell, uh, saying that if he ever had a game like that again, his contract was going to be ripped up. Um, Jeez. Which was which was interesting because uh, we. Did, you don't get much of that uh, in front of people uh, in, in in UK, but in the, in France that happens. And jeez, uh, and who who was sort of in that? You mentioned Haskell there. Who else was in that staff from Saint Like, it seems like they always sort of you know build a team of almost Galacticos these days. Yeah, well, at the time, so I, I guess uh, overseas players. I mean, we, we had so, so French players. We had Dimitri Sosnovsky. Um, we had. Julian Dupuis, we had Lionel Boxis, we had Sergio Parise, obviously, Antoine Bourbon, who obviously has come into the French team um, over the last few years. We had, I'm just trying to think who else, uh, Brian Liebenberg. Yeah. Uh, we had, and then we had, in terms of, um, in terms of overseas players, we had Tom Palmer, uh, mm-hmm. obviously second row, who played for England. We had James Haskell. We had Ollie Phillips, yep. who, who played on the wing. Um, obviously sevens. We had Ignacio Mieres, who spent a bit of time um, over in the UK as well, playing for I think Worcester and Exeter. Oh yeah. Um, played fly half, Argentinian fly half. Uh, we had um, Hernandez was there for a bit. Um, just trying to think. Obviously, Corletto left just before I signed. So yeah, there was there was a lot of players there. I mean, there was other guys. I would have Mark and A was there at the time mm. as well. Uh, there was guys, um, you know, quality, quality. Pascal Pape. I mean, there's, there's, the list goes on. The amount of players we had, um, and, and unfortunately, it was a time when the club was sort of struggling a bit in terms of the finances. Max was on the verge of sort of deciding whether he wanted to carry on because. You know, his, his company and RJ wasn't quite doing as well as it had done in the past. So it was it was a it was a difficult time for the club, but 
you know, it was a, it was a good experience, and you know, some of the players we had there, and the, uh, Mark Gasnier as well was another quality oh, yeah, player, of course. Who, who obviously a brilliant rugby league player um, in the in the day. So yeah, quality, quality, and obviously Simon. Um, <laughs> so no, brilliant, brilliant to play amongst those guys, and the experience of the rugby, the the life in Paris. We had our first child there. Mm. Uh, that that was that was pretty that was pretty testing and pretty difficult. Um, and so I guess that side of it was tough, but. But I played you know, forty odd games in two years, and the experience of that playing club games in front of you know eighty thousand at the Stade de France against against Toulon and Johnny Wilkinson and Claremont, and I mean that is something you just never you'll never forget. I mean that atmosphere is as good as you'll get um, in, in in any international. It was it was unbelievable. Sounds absolutely incredible. I mean, how how did you feel when I don't know who the coach was at the time, but said Hugo, you're playing scrum half against Bath. In the Champions Cup, I've, d- I've done my research. This is a great story. I, I tell you what, I, I actually I offered my services. I, I tell you, I tell you what happened. We 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 were during the week. It was because it was winter, uh, very much winter. I mean, it was sort of December, January, I think, and it was uh, yeah, say pre Bath. And uh, you'll remember the weather conditions of that game. Welcome to Scrum Half. Thank you very much. It was absolutely horrendous. <laughs> um, and we were training in the week because the weather was so bad. We were training in the week in a, in a gym, in an indoor gym in, in the centre of Paris somewhere. And I, I looked around and I hadn't heard on the Monday that, this was on the Tuesday, I think, but I hadn't heard on the Monday that one of our scrum master, one was Julian Dupuis, that was after we played Ulster, had been banned, if you remember, for that incident. Yes, I um, do. Um, so he'd yeah. been banned for a long time. Um, Noel Olshig, who was the other scrum half, um, had, had, had also been, I think he'd had a red card as well earlier, so he was banned as well. We then had another scrum half who was effectively cup-tied because he had signed, um, or sorry, he wasn't registered for Heineken Cup. So I looked around and all three, and then one of our other scrum halves was injured. So we had four scrum halves, and so even the academy scrum half was, was injured. So I looked around and I suddenly saw Matthew Blau, who was the hooker, practicing scrum half passing into a <laughs> handball goal. Well, a handball goal, as you know, is not the smallest thing. Yeah. It's not like you're throwing it into, you're just practicing a scrum half passing into an ice hockey goal even, which is which is probably a third of the size. And a, a handball goal is still pretty big. But he was obviously trying to just hit the target. And I went up to the coach and I said, I'm sorry, is, is, is Mathieu, you know, in French obviously, but is Mathieu looking to play scrum half this weekend? Because uh, he hadn't announced the team yet. He said, well, he says, you know, he can probably almost act as another forward, almost like the, the Maribor Masco situation. We know how that went. And bear in mind, bear in mind that Matthew Bland's actually a hooker, not a flanker. Um, I was thinking, well, this, this could go horribly pear-shaped. Yeah. It's an important game. We need to win. Very French just to go, yeah, why not? You just play hooker. You just play scrum half. You're a hooker. So I went up to the coach, Jack Delmas, looked at me, uh, you know, always looked completely perplexed every time you spoke to him, even though, you know, you thought you were speaking good French, um, because you refused to speak English. <laughs> you right. speak it. Um, and I said, I, I said, I'm sorry, Jack, but I need to put my name forward to play scrum half because I, I can't be, I played there till I was 15, 16. I said, I can't be, uh, watching, um, what's going on uh, here and not suggest that I can play. Yeah. And in the end, in the end, a few other guys went up to him, a few of the backs especially went up to him, Mark Gasnier, I said, yeah, I think we really need to, uh, uh, make this happen. So that's, that's how it came about. And yeah, I mean, there was a few incidences in the game as well, obviously, which was just, I mean, Lionel Boxy's to, to a T. Uh, I remember passing the ball back. I, I don't know if you have seen the footage. I, I was just about to ask you where he tried to punt the pass. He tried to, no, he tried, yeah, he tried to, so, 
you know, there'll be a game earlier in the season where I, I'd thrown the ball into box seats uh, in, a, in, a, in a top 14 game and rather than catch it, it went on straight into his hands it was a quick five metre line out instead of catch it he just volleyed it up to himself and, it, and he volleyed it up to himself perfectly he just couldn't be bothered there was no one around him yeah. he just couldn't be bothered to catch it so he volleyed it up into his hands it looked pretty cool but if it goes wrong you look pretty stupid but yeah. that was Lionel Boxy's complete and utter maverick and hence he never really pushed on in his career because you sort of you, as a player you could either you know, love him or hate him he was he was one of those guys but anyway in that game playing fly half obviously slippery ball Boxy's in the dead ball uh, dead ball area uh, or, or on his line pretty much on the goal line I've passed the ball back to him it's, he's a bit lower than he, he, he would have liked uh, put it that way um, but perfectly high enough to catch but he decided to try and volley it obviously completely missed it in the wet conditions and uh, Michael Classens uh, who's playing scrum half with David Bath just uh, said thank you very much and, uh, and, and ran under the post and passed on the ball and scored so uh, that was um, yeah how to be made to look even more stupid uh, playing nine by, by Lionel Boxes <laughs> I'm actually just watching it now I think your pass is absolutely fine so I don't, I don't think it was your fault um, <laughs> it might have been a bit slow and a bit loopy but uh, I yeah, definitely. Um, so two two years at Stad, and then we, at that point, were you sort of looking to come back to the UK, or just sort of trying to assess options? Was was a move back to Scotland ever on the cards? Uh, a move back to Scotland wasn't on the cards, mainly mainly because it, the the option wasn't there. Um, I'll be I'll be brutally honest. I I'd, you know done my time in Edinburgh. Um, I mean, if, if an opportunity had come back to move to Edinburgh, then or, or even to Glasgow, I, mean, I had spoken to Glasgow in my career right. um, about about different times of, of coming back. So if an opportunity had arisen to come back, then then I, I would have come back um, because it would have made things a lot easier uh, moving forward uh, for when we decided to come back up here. Because we mm. always we always planned and wanted as a family to, to, to move and live back up in Edinburgh so that was the, that was the end goal um, but um, yeah so I, I, obviously the situation uh, forced me into so if you remember 2011 was, was World Cup year yeah. um, I was playing for Stade Francais against Racing in May pre-World Cup um, and I did my knee um, in the, so I, I not badly but did my knee and that that's when I missed the Challenge Cup final the following week which was against uh, Quinns where we lost by a point at the Cardiff City Stadium um, so I missed that game which, which was pretty gutting in the first place but obviously that was my the end of my after that Racing game uh, at home that was the end of my uh, my, my stad career mm. um, but, but it hadn't been it, I didn't think it was going to be the end during the Six Nations and when we played France in Paris in February um, that, that, that year um, before I left Stade Francais Michael Checker was obviously coached by this stage in, the, in my second year as dad I had more coaches as dad than anyone can probably count on their fingers um, but Michael Checker was uh, was coach in my second right. year and I went when I went over to play um, for Scotland uh, against France uh, on the Friday he said well why don't we just meet up for a coffee? So I went out for a coffee with him and, and chatted things through. And he, you know, he said to me, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've been thinking things through. And, and you know, as I said before, I really want to keep you, keep you on for another year um, on, on the same terms. And I was like, yep, great, fine. Let's let's just let's just do it for another mm. year. Just solve things. There was there was a few options, but because it was World Cup year, it was a really really difficult time to sort out the next career move because it was always going to be difficult because you wouldn't be back with your new club until October. Yeah. Um, so um, that's what that's what I decided to do. Um, and then 
I had a call after the Six Nations, and probably not down to performance, but just because of, of situations changing, Stavros they suddenly were in desperate need of a 10. Uh, and to, in order to accommodate uh, a 10, they needed to uh, lessen their... Um, it's not like I was on loads of money, but they need to uh, balance, balance balance the books in terms of um, uh, making more money available for a ten and bring in a lesser experienced fifteen. Uh, and so suddenly, what had been discussed about wasn't even uh, um, uh, brought to brought back to me by Michael Checker, but instead was brought uh, to my attention by a French agent who then passed it on to, uh, to say that was the case. Um, right. So to this day. I never ever heard from Michael Checker pretty much from that time um, that I uh, played in that last played in that last game. Um, I think he, I think he let me know actually after that last game. Um, oh, sorry, the agent let me know after that last game, but I never Checker never spoke to me after that game again um, because he couldn't face the fact of uh, having changed his mind. He couldn't he couldn't bring himself to tell it to me myself in person. And so that was, uh, and, and I found it quite interesting. If you read Bernard Jackman's book about uh, Michael Checker, uh, it's quite it gives you quite an insight in, into the guy. You might come across as uh, well, you've seen him in the coach's box. That, that's yeah. That's how, he, that's how he can be. He's, he's in person a lovely bloke, but gee, there's 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 definitely two sides to Michael Checker. That's really interesting because he 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 kind of paints a picture of himself as like a a very principled, straightforward, almost like good old-fashioned honest bloke if you see what i mean yeah no there's 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 i think you you can speak to many people about michael checker and, and you know he's in person you know off the rugby field uh, a, a good guy but you know you've got to be as a coach as people with experience as i'm sure he, he's even learned to himself you've got to be honest you've got to be uh, straight with your players you've got to you know you do whatever you can to 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 make sure that everyone's as happy as they can be. Everyone's not everyone's gonna be happy the whole time. Mm. If you slightly change your mind, something changes, you just you just honest, you go to the player and you say, I'm really sorry, this is a situation. He couldn't bring himself to do that. So it left a bit of a, a bad taste. And it, and it put me in a position as well where going to a World Cup, potentially injured, uh, not sure whether I would make the World Cup squad because I was injured and I would only be fit two weeks before. At the time, I was second choice behind Mossy. Um, so there was always this doubt in my head. I was 31, obviously, at the time as well. Mm. So, so that, that was partly uh, the reason at the end of that Six Nations um, why I sort of I had a discussion with Andy Robinson um, pre-World Cup and I said Andy I sort of you know this is uh, this is very important to, to, to the next stage if I go to the World Cup um, there might there's every chance that I might not, I'm not well, there's every chance sorry I'll, I'll start this again I need to be almost you know I need to have some sort of um, uh, inkling whether you, whether you, you're thinking of taking me to this World Cup because otherwise I'm going to slug my guts out to try and get fit. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I might get fit a week before, and you then say, right, I'm going to take you. But if you then say you're not going to take me, I've then then got to go out for clubs are not going to sign me because they don't know whether I'm going to the World Cup until October. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, uh, at the time, it wasn't like you know Scotland. It was brilliant. It obviously, had an amazing career with Scotland. But I was thinking, I'm 31 here. I've got two kids. Mm. I said, if, if if I've got my, my, your main job, obviously, uh, and what you get paid for is your club. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I was seriously concerned that if I uh, went to the 
or, or trained and then didn't make the squad, I I would uh, you know, or if I didn't even get fit, then I wouldn't have a club until uh, potentially you know o- o- October time. So um, so I I decided to uh, speak to Andy about that. I said I'm in a really difficult position. Here. I've been offered a contract, um, or I've been offered a couple of deals based on not going not. He said, I can't give you any, any, any clue because everyone's in the same boat. Everyone's training artists. And I said, that's absolutely fine, but I, I've got a big decision to make here. Um, it was a shame because, you know, I wasn't in any way ready to, to give up. But what if I went to the World Cup, didn't play, and, and I couldn't get a contract at the end? That was, that was the thought, thought going through my head. Uh, and I was still only 31, and, and I still felt I had a lot to give. So it was a tough decision, but, you know, I mean, I look back on... The career, you know, the amount of times I played, and you know, I played fifty-nine times in, in, in out of sixty-three tests. Um, so I missed wow. four tests, four tests in seven years, mm. um, and you know, I, I gave as much as I could give, and I loved every minute of it. So I don't look back on it with regret that uh, I didn't make a second World Cup. I, I played in two thousand and seven, um, and at the time, that was the best decision for me and my family, uh, and that's and that's why I took it. And who was who was the coach at Wasp at the time? Who who brought you over? So, so Di Young, I was Di Young's uh, first signing. Oh right, wow. He, he he effectively signed at the same time that that, that I signed. Um, I mean, he came in uh, and he signed me. I was signed obviously late in the day because I didn't sign anything for Wasp until sort of middle of June, I think. Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe later, even July. Um, so yeah, so it was it was it was pretty late in the day, but I was his, 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 and so I had a good you know good relationship with him. Um, I knew that he'd come in to sort of build something, and, and the fact that I was the first guy that he'd brought on to, to start that build um, was a, was a good feeling. Um, and obviously after year one, then uh, you know I, I was I was captain in year two. So you know it was, it was I had a great time at Wasp. I had a great I've had a great time. Uh, for different reasons at all the clubs I've been to, mm. um, obviously, you know, both uh, both both Edinburgh and Wasps um, have, have, a, have a special place um, you know, in the two respective leagues uh, I've played in in, in the UK. It's bad, yeah, a great experience, uh, and I enjoyed it. But um, I wouldn't say I would rush back to play in, in front after my experience at Stad. People have different experiences at different clubs, uh, but the all-round experience at Stad was uh, was okay. Uh, right. I enjoyed the rugby. But outside of it, it was it was it was pretty tough. But Edinburgh, uh, hence I'm back in Edinburgh now. Edinburgh is 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 is, is a great, brilliant place. Absolutely love it. Um, brilliant uh, teammates I had through my time. Was likewise. Um, you know, I've been down back down there regularly uh, since uh, since retiring. You know, so so really good memories from from those two clubs, especially. And uh, you know, I wouldn't have changed uh, I wouldn't have changed many things apart from obviously more consistent winning performances for Scotland. One of the questions that we got on Twitter was, um, would you, I, th- I think on uh, quite a few places online say that you were sort of, as you mentioned, you cricket was a big, big love of yours and you sort of wanted to be a dual internationalist for, for Scotland. Would would you sacrifice, you know, say a, a portion of your Scotland caps to have, to have achieved that? Um, no, I don't, no, I wouldn't. No, I mean, I, I, I took the, I took the, the, the cricket, cricket, I, tried to be a pro cricketer when I was 19, 20. I didn't quite make it. Um, uh, yes, I look back at it at the time and think, you know, what if I'd gone to another county um, and tried my luck at the time? You know, Sussex was quite a strong county and, and, and maybe I could have, you know, gone somewhere else. I won't mention uh, some of the other counties I could have gone to, but I could have gone somewhere else maybe and, and, and gone on trial there. But, you know, I, 
again, 18, 19-year-old, a bit sort of, uh, I guess, a bit frustrated with, with how things had worked out. Um, decided to, decided not to pursue that, and actually, I wouldn't change anything. I mean, I had I had a, I had the most, you know, the best time. Um, yes, there's some difficult times throughout my career, as, as everyone and anyone in a Scotland shirt would have been through. But mm. um, you know, I wouldn't change it for anything. And to be a dual international, I mean, I, I tried uh, to play a bit of cricket after I finished playing, and, and obviously. You know, we won the league with Carlton uh, in 2016, and you know, had a good year. Played for East of Scotland and, and scored scored mm. a couple of fifties, I think, for them. And you know, if the opportunity was there, um, um, then it, then it would have come probably then, rather than um, sort of me forfeiting a portion of my rugby career to try and make it. So, you know, I was probably still, you know, I still would have had an opportunity uh, at 35, uh, 36, when I was playing for Carlton to, to probably play, but you know. Who's going to want a 35 or 36 year old to, to, to play um, to play the career for Scotland? And I think uh, you're looking at 21, 22 year olds rather than 36 year olds. Yeah, sure. Um, maybe just sort of ra- rounding off everything. Um, what what was your favourite um, Scotland match that you sort of look back on fondly? Um, I, I can't look much beyond. I mean, obviously, my first cap. You know, first cap. Uh, first first cap and first start. I mean, it all sort of rolled into one for me. I got half an hour off the bench against Samoa in Wellington. Um, but that was pretty subdued because obviously Samoa in Wellington, the crowd wasn't that big and it was just a bit, all, all a bit surreal, the whole sort of how things have unfolded. Um, so I always sort of think of Australia as my first proper uh, start, even though it was my second gap. Um, so that for me was just uh, immense. And also the, the, the occasion, as I said earlier in this conversation, to match that. Um, so that was that was amazing. But you, you, you can't you can't ignore, irrespective of, of, of how the games might have looked on TV in the pouring rain uh, against England. You can never beat uh, you can never beat uh, a Calcutta Cup win. Um, sure. And you know that those two wins in 2006 and 2008, uh, no matter how they came, whether it's because of you know big hits from Jace or, or, or Simon Taylor or you know, our defence being absolutely outstanding. Whatever way they come, those uh, those those wins, as we've seen over the years, don't come around that often. So you have to treasure those. So those 2006-2008 Calcutta Cup wins uh, will live long in the memory. Yeah, definitely. I still think you know loads of fans look back on them, um, you know, with with really great memories. Um, what what about the best player that you've played with and or and uh, against? Welcome. 
Sure. Um, and, and that's because he had the most ridiculous banana kick I've ever seen. So he could he could run one way and kick it the other way with with distance, which I don't think I've ever seen anyone else be able to do since that. Mm. Um, and, and what that did is the fullback meant you were running sixty meter sprints back and cro- across and, and back the the pitch the whole time because you're second guessing which way he was going to kick it. Um, and so, so for me, that didn't make him the best player, but it made him a, a player that was very difficult as a fullback to defend against the kicking game. Um, and uh, yeah. so, so for that, his kicking game was, was probably one of the best uh, in, in the world at the time. Uh, but, but Dan Carter is an all-round player just for his, his ability and, and his time on the ball that made everyone look as if, as they say, as he had three or four more seconds to everyone else. And what about uh, teammates of yours? Teammates of mine. I mean, I've I've played with some, you know, some some, some brilliant players, um, and I mean, I would guess the the best all round athlete player um, that I've or probably had the privilege of playing with. And, and saying this, he didn't play as well for Stade Français as he did for Italy, um, but Sergio Brice. Um, right. Obviously, his, his, his cap speaks themselves for, for, for Italy. Um, but, but in terms of his level of performance, in terms of consistency over God knows how many years he played both for Stade Francais and for Italy, uh, was absolutely phenomenal. Mm. Um, and, and he was in, you know, he was in brilliant shape, a f- phenomenal nick for, for a whole stage of his career. Wasn't injured that often. Yes, he had a few knee injuries, but he wasn't too badly injured. Um, could pretty much do everything. I mean, he could drop kick. He could, you know, not that he needed to. He could, he could punch for touch. He could. I mean, he could do everything. Um, again, decision making off the base of the scrum, acceleration away. I mean, he was, he was, he was properly good, especially in his prime. Yes, okay, towards the end of his career, things might have slowed down a bit, but gee, what a, what a, what a longevity of a career and uh, and a very, very, you know, proper, proper, amazing player. Definitely, that's that's fascinating. Um, and then, sorry, one probably the last question is just, uh, you know, through this period of sort of isolation and everything, which which former teammate would you sort of most and least like to sort of spend <laughs> lockdown with? Uh, I definitely like to uh, the least. The person I'd least like to spend lockdown with is, is James Haskell. Okay. Um, I think I think a few people have probably. Uh, I, I, I did a quiz on a university quiz, and Chris Rob, Chris Robshaw came on as a, a surprise guest to ask one of the questions, and, and he said as well. Um, he said, "Who who who's the person I'd least like to uh, be stuck in a room with for, for too long, or something like that? What's that they're left with?" And it was Haskell. Right. Um, so I, I think he, he probably gets that quite a bit. So um, yeah, so so Haskell um, is is the person I'd least like to to be. Uh, stuck in lockdown with um in terms of the person i mean there's there's, there's quite a few guys i mean i i as i say a lot of my a lot of my Edinburgh teammates um you know were 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 all you know quality blokes that, that i had a really good we had a really good team spirit not just on the pitch um you know as, as a group of players but mm. obviously off the pitch as well and you know those those times i spoke about in 2003 2004 i think it's hard to say not as any one individual that I would I would like to get stuck in lockdown with. I think uh, as a group, um, the relationship we had as players, um, uh, you know, at Edinburgh especially, because uh, I was there the longest, uh, was absolutely amazing. Awesome. Well, Hugo, thanks so much for that. That's been absolutely brilliant. No problem at all. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.